really sure. Um, it, sometimes that happens. You've got to do what you have to do, right? And so sometimes things don't go perfectly. Um, I, I wanted to mention, the pastor was talking about age a little bit. You know, you've got to be careful when you're not the last one at the pulpit. You've got to be careful what you say. And uh, so I thought it, it shouldn't be, you know, older than 30. We were the experienced ones. And I, I thought we sounded great, right? Didn't, didn't you? It, yeah, okay. I, I, that was the consensus that the uh, more experienced sounded better. And I, I, people ask me my age. If I'm not with my family especially, um, people ask me my age. And, and invariably people think I'm younger than what I am. And uh, just, just so you know, I am 40. It wasn't that long ago. A couple years ago, I was traveling for a college, and I would go to Christian schools. In multiple times, I had people say, how do they let you at a class to do this? And I'm thinking, man, I've got three kids. That time I had three. Maybe I had four. I have three kids. You know, I, I've been in the ministry for 10, 15 years at that point, and, and you're asking me well, how they let me at a class. I thought it was funny. I don't get offended by it. I think it's funny. One time I got asked after a church service, a young man came to me. It was one of those situations like would be with my family where he wasn't shy, but his wife was, so she wasn't there. But she had made a comment to him in the service, you know, that they let somebody out of class and that kind of thing to travel and go preach by themselves to the school. And so he just said, I just want to know, you know, how old you are. And, uh, you know, when did you graduate college? I told him I graduated. I graduated from college before he and his wife had graduated from high school. And she was making comments about my age. So I thought it was kind of funny uh, how that goes. Uh, anyway, do you ever have hobbies that kind of get in the way of life sometimes, even though you like them? I, I like to hunt. I haven't, I haven't even bought a hunting license in the state in which I live, but I haven't had time for it. Uh, but I find that I have a lot of different hobbies that, that I like to do. I, I, I used to play a lot of basketball, but I find as I'm over 30, I don't uh, play as much. I like golf, but I don't play as much as I used to. And I get my hands into a lot of different things. We like spending time with friends. And uh, when I'm at home, like I've said, I, I work. And, and that's fun. And, and uh, all those different things that we do, but they can eventually, maybe they boil up to us and we say, you know, am I spending too much time at this? Is this something that draws me away? Even reading. Is this something I'm spending too much time in? Or am I reading for me? Am I reading too much of a certain kind of thing that... It's not really helping me in my life. It's definitely not helping me as a Christian. And God knows those things. God knows that, that we have those in our lives. And it's no different than it was 100 years ago or in the first century church. And so God gives us some instruction on that in Colossians chapter 1. And that's where we'll be tonight. When sometimes things become more important than they ought to be, we need to remember that Christ should be the center of our lives. Everything. The center of everything. How we conduct ourselves. What we do. Uh, pastor let me borrow a book. It's a, kind of the second part of a missionary life. And so I've been trying to read that as fast as I can. So that I can get it back to him for the end of the week. And, and uh, I'm more than halfway done. So uh, I had a budget. This is how much I have to read every day. And one of the things that, about it is they... There, there are these Indians in South America that really had not been contacted before he got to them. The, the other Indian tribes around them that were primitive were afraid to go near them because, uh, because they would, were probably going to get killed. But God, through his providence, made miraculous ways for him to live with them and after five years give the gospel. And these people think differently. They've lived out in the jungle for centuries maybe. And, and so... When he began to give them the gospel, 
they, they, he told them about Jesus Christ and they said, well, what, what trail did he walk? In other words, what was his life like? And they said, we want to walk in his trail. And so that transformed the way they live because as they learned about Jesus, they, they would say, well, that's, that's his path, that's his trail. And so that's what we need to walk now. That's how we need to live. Everything, everything. These people, they lived in a, in a imagine well, a building about like this, except 60 feet wide and uh, maybe 100 feet long. And everybody in the village lived. around the outside of the building and everybody has that but they said that some in hunting but the, the family next to them they weren't successful so the family next may be starving to death sick well this family is feasting and maybe even some food is wasted and they said that's just the way it was somebody might even die but you know what that's their family that's not my family until Christ came into their lives and then they would give, and then they would share, and then they would help each other out. It, it became a community for God because they were saying, we're walking the path of Christ. Well, the path of Christ is what is given to us in the New Testament. We're told how he walked, and so therefore, how we ought to walk. And, and Paul says in verse number 10 of chapter 1, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing and being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. As you increase in the knowledge of Christ, you will become more like him and therefore you'll be fruitful in all those works that he did. But then he tells us in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Paul is reminding them that Christ should be the center of their lives. That everything should revolve around that. Because sometimes distractions come into our lives. It can be work. Uh, my wife has said to me more than once that uh, if, if I wasn't in ministry, that she said, you could easily become a workaholic. And, and you know, I thought, that's oh, not me. <laughs> I mean, I don't like work that much. But I'm goal-driven. And when I have that goal, and, and I'm, I'm independent, so I'd probably be self-employed anyway. And, and I did a lot of that. And with, you know, whether it's painting or whether it's construction, I just want to expand it. And I want, I want the customer to like what I do. And I want to do a good job at it. And I want to get the job done in a, in a timely manner. So work can become something that overshadows other things. Maybe not intentionally, but that's how some of those things can happen. And I do. I have some pursuits that I like to do. And, and there's other pursuits that I want to, to learn and I want to take part in. And I have a part of my personality is when I, when I find something that I like, man, I, I jump in with both feet, both hands and everything. I'm like, let's, let's figure this out. Let's learn it. Let's, let's understand this. And I got into running this spring because I was turning 40. I said, look, I'm not going to let 40 hit me. I want to hit 40. And uh, I didn't like what the scale was telling me. I didn't like what my body, my kids would say, hey, let's go play soccer after supper. Man, I didn't want to do anything after supper. I just wanted to sit. 
And so I said, okay, we gotta, we gotta do something about this. So I started running and I hated it. And I've always hated just running for running's sake. And so uh, I said, how are we gonna fix this? So I started finding out, how am I supposed to run? And I looked on YouTube and my wife's like, all you do is watch videos on how to run. And I was like, because I learned I don't know how to run. And I learned it and, and, I, and I enjoy it now. And it's helpful to me. And I, I don't mind playing with the kids. We played hockey in the gym today, had a great time. I lost, but we had a great time. But Paul says, look, there's some things in life that can overshadow what should be. And Christ should be the center. And he gives us some reasons why Christ should be the center. And the first one we see in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. This refers to his purpose. Why Christ came. For the Son of Man is come, this is Jesus' words, to seek and to save that which was lost. In Matthew, he said it this way. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, not to be served, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ didn't come to be worshipped as God. He came to redeem us. That his blood would be shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Now we don't use the word redemption very often. Uh, I think I've heard it used in relationship to coupons. I don't really understand it in that context. But redemption, probably the best way I can explain it to you, is like I said, I, I do like to golf. I don't golf as much as I would like to. It's an expensive sport. And, uh, but when I was in high school, I was very fortunate because uh, we had a place probably 15 miles from where I lived that uh, my parents bought a student membership for me for only $150. And, and that enabled me to play as much, as long as I walked, as much as I wanted to, and it was already paid for on that little, that little card that they gave me for 150 What a great deal. And so I'd go after work and I'd run between holes. Now I learned because my grandpa was a golfer. Now he didn't live super close to us, but he was a golfer. He worked on a golf course. And so he had some golf clubs when I was 12 years old that were adult clubs, but he cut them down and made him fit me for 12 years old, taught me how to swing and, and all those things. When I became a teenager, he gave me some uh, uh, adult-sized clubs and he gave me a putter and he said, look, this, this is a good putter. He said, it's, it's not a cheap putter, so don't ever sell it. And if you, if you ever did, it's you know, at least $100 to do that. Well, that, the price didn't matter to me at all because it was, it was my putter. It was the one that my grandpa gave me. And so I went off to college and when I went to college, my, my my sister and I went to the same college, and so we would ride together in the same vehicle, which means I didn't have much room uh, for my stuff, let alone for my golf clubs. And so I went to college, and in that, in that time frame, uh, another friend of mine from my college interned at my home church. He kind of helped out at the church and learned some things. And so my dad got him into golf. And in that process, my dad felt like this guy doesn't have any clubs, so he gave him some clubs, one of which was that putter. Yeah, so it's great to be a giver. My dad's a giver. Don't give other people's things, okay? You're, I don't know that that's giving at that point. That's, I might be theft. But anyway, that's not what my dad's intent was. He, he gave away my putter. And I remember thinking, how am I going to get this back? And the only thing I could think of was, I'm going to have to buy it. You know what I mean? He's not just going to give it to me because... He, he probably doesn't see the value in it. He doesn't know the backstory behind this putter. To him, he wasn't really a golfer. He didn't see the value in the brand. He didn't see the value in any of that. Um, and I'm not even sure he, that he knew that it was mine. And years went by, but, and I wanted the putter back. But I thought, I'm going to have to buy it back. That's what redemption is, by the way. Something that was 
your possession. Now it's not any longer, but it must be bought back. That is literally the meaning of redemption, to buy back. So what does it mean that God redeemed us? Well, God made us with a relationship with him in the Garden of Eden. And because of sin, we were sold under sin. We chose, in Adam and Eve, we chose sin over God. And so therefore, the Bible tells us in Romans that death passed upon all men for that all have sin. Every human being that has a human father is a sinner. That's everybody. That's everybody, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, who was virgin born. He was without sin. That's why he could die in our place. That's why when he died on a cross, that's why he could pay for my sin because he didn't have his own to pay for. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, neither by the blood and goats, of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Because goats and calves, goats, sheep, calves, all those things could never take away sins. They were only given as a picture to what was to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that for all that time, they would say, there is a sacrifice that's coming, a perfect sacrifice to buy me out of my sin. That's why Jesus came. Well, he didn't just die. He rose again three days later. Now, what is Paul saying? We have redemption and we also have forgiveness. The psalmist said it this way. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquity, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. In other words, if God were just writing down my sins and God doesn't forget so God would know all my sins. I could not stand before God. My judgment would be, would be almost a joke. But there is forgiveness. He does forgive me. In fact, he wants to forgive me. He made the way with Christ to forgive me. Isn't that good news? Yeah. Forgiveness is a, a release, a full release. God's not going to bring it up to me again. In fact, he says he'll remember it no more. He chooses not to remember sin. That is forgiveness but it can only be received through faith and repentance. Through my coming to him and saying, I believe what you have done for me, and I want that. I believe it. Would you give it to me? I turn from my sin. And through that, I can receive that. So right there, this first point, that the purpose of Christ was to redeem me and forgive me. Now, there are some things that I think, Lord, do we really have to preach that verse? I think of John 3.16. Very simple, very straightforward. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, we know that's on a cross, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That tells me that there's a, a, a perishing that might happen to those that don't believe because of sin. But that God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. Now, I could say, well, I just preached it right there in the last 15 to 30 seconds. And, and I think about that verse and I think, man, why can't we just quote that verse to the world? And they say, well, amen, that God would do that for me. I, I want to know God. I want to trust him. I want to be one of his. But we can't. We do, but they, they don't just fall all over each other. I mean, our churches aren't full of people trying to be saved, wanting to believe that we have to preach it. We have to preach it because our hearts are hard. Now, as a Christian... I look at this verse and I think, Paul, why did you have to write any more about putting Christ central in our lives? 
It's because we let things crowd us out. And our hearts sometimes are hard. And we say, no, I, want, I, I still like this. And I don't necessarily want the life that means Christ is the center of my life. But he says it should be. He should be because of his purpose. And then secondly, notice in verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. The image of the invisible God, his person. Who is Jesus? One of the disciples, Philip, in John 14 said, show us the Father. Then Jesus said, have you been with me so long and you have not seen the Father? What Jesus was saying was, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. When Jesus turned the water into wine, we see the power of God. When Jesus fed the 5,000, we see him feeding people, providing for people. When Jesus saw the multitudes that were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd, and he wept, we see God weeping for people being scattered. When we see Jesus on a cross, we see God on a cross. When we see Jesus rise from the dead, we see God rising from the dead, showing us that God loves us, showing us that God would die for us, would rise for us. When we see Jesus at the side of the lake, speaking with Peter, who had denied him three times, who maybe had said, I don't know what else to do, I'm just going to fish. I'm going to go back to that lifestyle. We see that God never brought it up to Peter. Peter, you denied me. Never said a word about it. But he said, Peter, would you feed my sheep? Peter, I want to use you. Regardless of your failings, we see who God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you have a question in your life. Who is God? Read about who Jesus is in the Gospels. And you'll see who God is. You'll see a loving caring, sacrificial, servant God. Isn't that amazing? Yes. We sing a song and, it, and it, at the very last phrase, the very last phrase of the very last verse, it talks about he's our creator, redeemer, and friend. That's amazing. That's amazing that our creator would choose to be our friend. He would choose to redeem us. It really is amazing. And it says here, He's the image of the invisible God. In Hebrews, we're told, who being in the brightness of his glory, he is also the express image of his person. And that, that word image has the idea of, of like a, you think of a quarter, and it's stamped, that image is stamped on the quarter of that face. And Jesus is the express stamped image of God. If God had a body, it's Jesus Christ, and that's who he is. He isn't anything different than who God is, except that, the, that he's in a body. In, in Colossians chapter 2, we're in that book right across the page for most of us, verse 9 of chapter 2, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus was God completely. He is the image of the invisible God. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of him being central in our lives. Now, worship. What does worship mean? And our culture wants to worship the way they want to worship. That's not worship, is it? If the, if the worshiper is choosing, well, I don't feel like doing it that way, well, who's being worshipped? The individual who's doing it their own way. I mean, if, if this is 
a ludicrous illustration, but if you were going to worship me, and, uh, and, I, and I like pecan pie, and I say, I want you to worship me by giving me pecan pie, and you brought, uh, what is my dad like, raisin cream pie? And you brought, I, I don't want anything to do with that. Okay, and you brought that, you say, well, I like raisin cream pie. Well, who's being worshipped? Well, it's not, it wouldn't be me. It'd be the person that's making the raisin cream pie. And bringing that as an offering. Well, when God asks for a certain kind of worship and man brings it his own way, it's not God that's being worshipped. Worship means worthship. What is it worth? When I, we were in New York City several years ago, my, my wife's family lives there, and, and uh, we, we were sightseeing. It's probably the first time I'd been there, second time. There was uh, Empire State Building. And so we wanted to, to go up in the Empire State Building, so we went all the way there, we got there, and we found out that to go all the way to the top, if you're going to take the elevator, it's going to cost 40 Now, this was years ago. I don't know what it cost today. $40 a person. $40 a person. So that was very disappointing because I, it's not worth it to me to pay 80 bucks for, for an elevator ride to the top. I had made a decision in my mind, a valuation. This is not worth it. It's not worth my money. Is God worth your money? Absolutely he is. In fact, the money that you have, you, you can thank God for it because he is the one that gives you the breath to be able to have that, that occupation. He is the one that provides that for you. God is a provider. Is he worth it? Absolutely. Does our lives show that? Does our checkbook, does our, uh, does our bank account tell us that where our money goes is showing the worth of God? And if, it, if that's true, then we'll tithe. If that's true, then we'll give to missions. If that's true, our pocketbook is going to show that because we're saying, God, you're worth it to me. And, and, and consider this thought. Does God need to steal from anybody? No. Does God want to do that? No. In fact, he said, thou shalt not steal. God is not going to take something. And if you overgive, do you think God is thinking, oh, oh I pulled one over on them? No, God's not doing that. God's going to bless you for that. And the statement has been said, you cannot outgive God. That's true whether we believe it or not. But I, I, after this week, I dare you, try it. After this week. I'm just telling you that because I'm not, this is not my motivation for myself. After this week, see if you can outgive God and see what happens. God will surprise you. It may not be immediately, but God will undertake. God will undertake but is he worth our money? Absolutely. We made another evaluation that day because if you don't take the elevator, you could take the stairs. But I think that's over 100 floors. And, and 100 floors, even when you're young, 100 floors is uh, intimidating. Because, because, I mean, I'm a confident person, but I thought, well, what if I get to 80-some stories and I still have over 15 to go? And I decide, I don't want to do this anymore. Not only do I have to go the rest of the way, but I have to come down. And I'm assuming that if you're all the way up there, you're not taking the elevator for free. Okay, you're not coming down for free. You're gonna you're gonna pay the forty bucks one way or another. And and so I said, you know what? That that would take a lot of energy to get up there. And and I don't want to expend my energy climbing these stairs. I made another evaluation. Is he worth my energy? Is this worth my energy? Is God worth my energy? We could say, is God worth my service? Absolutely he is. He came not to be ministered to, but to minister. And we're told in Philippians that when he became a man, he took upon him the form of a servant. And in his last days, 
He washed the disciples' feet. Washing feet is not like, oh, let me take your shoes and your socks off and clean your semi-clean feet, okay? No, no, no. They wore sandals. They walked on paths where donkeys used for, you know. That's what they, they walked in those paths. Their feet were dusty. They were dirty. And they might have smelled. It was the job, not of the servant that fed you, obviously, that wouldn't make sense, but it was the job of the lowest servant because anybody can do that and we're not going to honor you in any other way. That is the servant that stood by the door when they came in, they would wash the feet and he said, nobody was here to do this and I'm going to serve you in that way. And Jesus said, I'm willing to do that. Not a problem. The God of the universe would have washed your feet too. And yet I find in churches that we've served in, my wife's been in charge of nurseries and all those places, it's hard to find people to serve in a nursery. And, and sometimes in ours, at our church, uh, until just recently, we've had a bumper crop of, uh, of, of, of babies, boys, actually. And, and uh, there'd be like one child in there. And so, you know, I would help with my wife and I didn't hardly have to do anything but sit in a comfortable room and, uh, and, and you know, watch a baby. You know, that's not hard. But even if it is hard, is God worth that? Can you express your value of God, your worship to God, in the energy that you have? Teaching a class, taking the offering, vacuuming a floor, cleaning a bathroom. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter if no one else sees it because you're not going to be judged at the end of your life by anybody in this room. It's going to be by God himself. And when he says, I will honor the cold cup of water that you give in my name, he'll honor cleaning the bathroom. He'll honor teaching a Sunday school class. He'll honor the service that you give. If you just see something and, and say, Pastor, I've noticed this need. Can I, can I help? Absolutely. I'm sure he'll say yes. Because if it's for the Lord, God's going to use that. Is he worth your energy? Does your life show that? Does your life show it? And there's another thing we decided that day. That even if I had the energy to, to climb those stairs, it was going to take a while. I didn't do the math to figure out how long it was going to take me to get up and all the way down. But we decided it wasn't worth our time. That's pretty simple, right? We do that all the time. Is this worth, at least I do, is this worth my time? Do I have the time to take to go do this in order to do all the other things in my life? And there are some things that I would want to do that I say, you know what, I can't. Uh, I've been taking some classes to do something that I, that I wanted to get into and it's be good for our kids. And one of those classes is on Wednesday night. And I just told him, I said, look, I can't do that. I can't do that. I, I have church. So I won't be here on Wednesday nights. That's something my parents taught me. Now, I was an athlete, and, and I, was, I was a decent athlete growing up. And, uh, but, and, and I love sports. But my, my parents taught me that God comes first when it comes to sports. And even though there were things that I know that I missed out on, I don't look back and regret any of that. Because it taught me that he is first. It taught me that God is first. And I trust God that God will make that worth it in my life or in my next life in heaven. Because he is worth that. He is worth my time. We've noticed that at our church when I was a youth pastor in Indiana, there were some people that we had a church calendar. We didn't, we didn't have bulletins. We just had a church calendar. It came out once a month. And so almost all the activities and events were on that church calendar. And so you put it on your fridge or whatever, and that's pretty much what kept you there. But there were some people that that church calendar really was their calendar. What I mean by that, as soon as that came out, they took their own pocketbook calendar out or their phone or whatever and plugged those things into those dates because they said, well, that's what we're going to do. If that's what the church is doing, 
That's our life. And we revolve our life around the place, around the people that Christ said, this is my body. This is the institution that God has ordained to do his work in this community. And so they said, that's our life. That's putting Christ at the center of our lives and saying, I'm not going to let the church revolve around me, but I'm going to revolve my life around the church because that is the vehicle through which Christ is working in our community. How are we going to win the lost outside the way that God ordained? Well, we're not. We need to do it within the way that God ordained. And when people see this as a community of people that love each other, that serve each other because they're walking the trail of Jesus, walking in his footsteps, changing their lives to be like his, it becomes an attractive place to be involved with, that these people care about each other. There are a lot of families that there's not much love in. There should definitely be love in this family. And that's another way that you can show that he is worth it by saying, Lord, I'm going to emulate your life because that's what you have given to me. His purpose, his person, and then thirdly, his power, the power of Christ. Notice verse 16, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Notice this, all things were created by him and for him. We don't often think of Jesus being involved in creation, but he was. He was the word of God. He is the word of God. In John 1, we're told in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14 of that chapter, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know that the word was Jesus Christ. We know that he was God, and we know that he created all things. Hebrews tells us that. Corinthians tells us that, that he was the creator, that not, there was nothing made without the Lord Jesus Christ. We went to a glass factory one time. I thought I was going to hate the tour, but it was great. Uh, men were taking molten glass and making it into amazing artistic designs and vases and those kind of things. But as every good tour is, you end up in the gift shop as soon as you're done, right? They plop you right out there in the gift shop. And this gift shop, you know, the shelves, they brought glass things. You know, all the, sh the aisles are really small and the shelves are right there with stuff right at the end of the shelves. You just feel like your hands have to go in your pockets and find my way to the door and don't bump anything because they are going to charge me if I break this. The most expensive thing I found was $1,400. Can you imagine for a piece of glass? It was fancy. It was big. But right before we entered into the gift shop, they showed us the quality control area. And in that area, there's a couple of people that sit at, at desks, tables, whatever, and something comes off the assembly line and they pick it up and they look at it and they turn it and maybe they shine some light through it. They're looking for bubbles, discoloration, abnormalities. If it's good, that's fine. It goes down here and it'll be boxed, it'll be shipped, it'll be sold in some manner. But it's something that the inspector says, it's just not right. There was a big bin and they just threw it in there. That would be fun. I, I think every once in a while I'd say, no, nah, I just want to throw one in and break it. And they take that and they remold that into something else. You know, if, if one of them bumped something in the gift shop, it's not a big deal. Sweep it up, remake it. If I bumped it, you think they'd let me off the hook? No, they're probably making me pay full price 
for broken glass. Why? Well, they can do that. They're the creators. You know, God's our creator. He made us. And although he allows us to make the choice, he still should be the center of our lives. He should be the one that we say, Lord, you created me. What did you create me for? How did you create me to live? What is it that you want me to do? How do you want me to live my life? I will be in your word. I will be in your house. And I will learn from you so that I can follow you because you are my creator. That is who you are. It also says, and, and all things are for him. He has authority. Jesus said when he ascended into heaven, all authority, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He is authoritative. He is the owner. My parents had these two dogs. One of them was nice and the other one was not. Okay. Uh, I tried to get along with it. Uh, but one day it decided to use my basketball shoes as a fire hydrant. And that was a line that, that cannot be crossed. Okay. You know, at that point I'm thinking, look, dog, I can bury you in the backyard and just say something bad happened. Because that's true. Something bad happened. Okay. I can punt you off the deck. And we've all seen little dogs like that, right? We've all seen little dogs that yap and yap and yap and they chew up the furniture and they do all kinds of things like that. And you think, we well, you know, who do you think you are? You know, you're just a little dog. You're going to die way before I do. And if I don't feed you, you're going to die. You know, all these things. It's the truth. And, I, and sometimes I wonder if, if God kind of looks at us and chuckles when we live our lives and yap at the Lord. Well, I can do what I want to do. I can live my life the way I want to live it. And the Lord says, sure, you've got that choice, but that's not how I made you to work. Uh, and, and that's not how things are going to work best. I've designed a way for your life to be the happiest, to conform to the image of my son. You'll have more joy, real joy, real peace. All the things that I designed for you, but you can't have that outside of my design. And yep, 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 yep. He ought to be the center of our lives. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. One of the things it's saying here is that he is preeminent, whether we believe it or not. Whether we choose to live our lives in that reality, he is still preeminent. He is not preeminent only if we make him preeminent. No, he is the son of God, whether we live our lives that way or not. And what Paul is saying is, look, we need to live our lives in reality that he is preeminent. Not that I'm preeminent, not that my pastor's preeminent, not that the president's preeminent, not that the governor is, not that my boss is, but the Lord Jesus Christ is, he is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. He does have the preeminence. Live life in reality that he is. Put him in the center, nothing close. I'm a competitive person. I, I, I like competing. I've learned to, there's a, like a switch now. I just, if it's not worth it, then I'll switch it off. But I still, to this day, I can't let my kids win at anything. I didn't let them win today. Uh, one of my daughters is, is as competitive, maybe, well, no, 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 I'm more competitive, okay? <laughs> she is very competitive, and, and she's very lucky, too, and she does get that from me. She's very lucky, and so playing hockey today, I think she scored a hat trick. I think she scored, like, three, maybe four, and one or two of them, I was just like, are you serious? That just happened? 
Uh, and she just laughs, you know, and, but I love the competitiveness. And you say, you're competitive against four little girls? Absolutely. Do you want, do you want to lose to four little girls? I don't think so. Uh, I just, I want to win. And, and, and when I want to win, I, I don't mind winning big. I like winning big, okay? I like, I like athletes that say, I don't just want to win the game, I want to win by a lot. And some have said that. And I probably, my favorite Olympian of all time was not even an American. Uh, and that was Usain Bolt. And when he would run, I mean, if you saw him run, you said, this guy's special. I, mean, he, I remember when Michael Johnson set the world record for 100 meters. And, and I remember watching that Olympics, I think it was in the late 90s, and, and the commentators were said, we never thought that record would be broken, so sure enough, this record will never be broken. And then Usain Bolt came along and ran, and I remember when he broke that world record, it seemed like he let up in the last few strides. And I thought to myself, you just set the world record that people said would never be beaten, and you beat it by a decent margin, and it looks like you let up. That is amazing. And then he ran the 200 meters, and he won that, and he might have set a world record. Then just, just amazing, to the point where he, he won so well that I thought, man, we should just forget second place. You know, he gets gold, and then there's a bronze, okay? No, don't even put anybody in second place, because they didn't show up to the, to the game like he did. You know, that's how we should have the Lord in our lives. Amen. That He is first and there is no second. He is far and above. And it, and it should be obvious, not necessarily to everybody else, but it should be obvious to you that Christ is everything to you. And when we put it in perspective of what He has done for us and that He came to this earth, He left the glories of heaven. He took upon Himself the form of a man became a servant, became mocked, became beaten, laid down his life in the cruelest form of execution that man could invent. And he did that for me. You know, somebody has said, if I was the only sinner, Christ would have still died for me. I'll take that further. If Christ had to die individually for each one of us, he would have. He would have died eight billion times, nine billion times, because that is his love for every single one of us. And if he is willing to do that, can I not live my life for him? Can I not live with him first in my life? How about you? Imagine how your life would be different if Christ was first. Well, why can't we start conforming it day by day to that image. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed.